the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into our third hour, it's a delight to bring back our good friend, George Kaloff. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group. He's the president of Data Orbital, one of the best uh, political minds and consultants uh, in the country. We are blessed to have him here in Arizona as a friend of this show, as a uh, count him a personal friend as well. George, I hope that doesn't ruin your reputation. Thanks for being with us. Are you kidding me? It only adds to <laughs> okay. Even when I call you cartoon character names, right? <laughs> I'll let it slide because you are a friend. Uh, I'll let it slide. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's a busy political week, and we're heading into another one. And I just wanted to check in with you and um, hold on to you a little bit to walk us through and think us uh, think with think think us through some of this stuff. Iowa sure. um, and then New Hampshire. Let's start with Iowa, George. Uh it's it's been a few days. Things can be digested. Um, Nikki Haley comes out in third place and says it's evident this is now a two person race. I thought that was an interesting comment. I don't know how you assimilate that or how you explain that or what you drew from the unprecedented fifty plus percent win that Donald Trump achieved in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. I mean it. He is the first uh, first uh, major party candidate, non-incumbent, to receive a majority of the caucus vote since, I believe, the mid-70s uh, from either party. Uh, it affirmed what you and I, I think, have been talking about for the better part of the last nine months. Iowa was a big deal, particularly for Ron DeSantis. Um, coming out of Iowa, the commentary from, you know, about him and his campaign is, you know, there was commentary this morning about how you know, it may have been the worst run presidential race in the history of the United States. And then you get Nikki Haley, who, you know, it was a very close third and, you know, is in a decent position in New Hampshire. But again, 31 and a half points off from Donald Trump, who led. And there's still a very big chance that Donald Trump could still win New Hampshire and is in a commanding lead in South Carolina. I mean, to me, the race, you know, it affirms that the race is all but done. I think the nominating process is over for the Republicans as it's been over for the Democrats. I mean, I think it's going to be a rematch of, uh, of 2020. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about DeSantis? Can we talk freely a little bit about how that campaign sure. implied? A year ago, people thought, oh, boy, this is a juggernaut. Um, if you su- if you supported Trump, you were a little bit nervous about him. If you didn't support Trump, you had high hopes with Ron DeSantis. Uh, you, uh, any number of statements were were said about him. This is Trump without the drama. This is, uh, you know, the model governor. This is young. It's the new generation. Um, I have my own thoughts, which I'll be candid with you about. Do you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, look, you almost don't know where to start. I don't know if we can pin it on any one thing. The best summary that I could think of is he needed to convince voters that he now very clearly in hindsight, because we know Trump remains popular no matter what, and even remains popular with a lot of DeSantis voters, that he needed to be Trump with a lot of extra positives. And he convinced people that he was similar to Trump-ish, but, but you know, almost did the inverse. And so it's just, I mean, the campaign spent a lot of money in all the wrong ways. The campaign the entire time, a tremendous infighting in and of itself yep. between the PAC, 
you know, the outside organization that was supporting him, that, that drama was very clearly highlighted. I Even remember if, when you were here just blown away when you saw, you discussed on air with us, that one memo that the PAC released yes. attacking the campaign, yeah. unheard of. Yeah, yeah. And, and now it, it looks like, Seth, um, the, the drama and the problems were way more intense yep. than, than even most of the folks in the public realized. Some of it's now coming out into light, and it all culminated essentially into a full leadership change, including the main consultant, Jeff Rowe, right. in the middle of December uh, from the Political Action Committee, which raised the bulk of the money, by the way. Yep. It raised way more money than the campaign. Yep. So this entire time, it seemed like it was a campaign that was falling apart below the surface. No one realized it. And then, obviously, the command that Donald Trump had that, that DeSantis had had thought maybe would not be there or would dissipate only strengthened every time the Justice Department and the courts went after him, every time that, that people, you know, oftentimes unfairly went after, you know, Trump, it solidified the support. And so the path and the lane that Ron DeSantis thought was there never materialized and allowed people like Vivek Ramaswamy and Tim Scott and others that had their moments where they peaked and now Nikki Haley at the, at the end. But you know, he had his moment a year too early. It was a full year before the Iowa caucuses yep. when he was in the lead, and it's candidly been all downhill since then. I, I, I agree with everything you said. I also agree that there were a lot of elements here that spoiled this soup or stew. And um, I'll throw a few at you, and you feel free to tell me if I'm wrong about any of them or right about any of them or how important any of them are. Each one kind of reinforced the other, I think. Um, one is... Uh, that something Peggy Noonan wrote, I, I quote often, because I think it just had a ring of truth. With a lot of candidates, you, you know, you ask, you ask yourself, do I like them? With Ron DeSantis, you tend to ask, does he like me? There's, there's just some chemistry there that's not quite right. So how did it work in Florida? Why did he do so well in Florida? Well, one might say, you know, People in this mood and in this mode of the conservative movement want a fighter. And in Florida, he was a fighter. He fought all the big liberal institutions. He fought the media. He fought higher education and the universities. He fought elementary and secondary education. <clears throat> he fought uh, the health industry and the mandates. He fought big corporations, Disney. When he got to the national stage, you just that, – that wasn't there. And maybe those opportunities weren't there. But you didn't hear that kind of fighting from him. Um, you heard about him talking about those fights, but not, you know, talking about the future fights. I think that's a part of it as well. Um, so the chemistry, what was his brand, wasn't shown as his brand. And then this third thing, and I don't know how to describe it exactly, George, but you kind of know it when you see it. I saw it with the Giuliani presidential campaign. I saw it with the Jeb Bush presidential campaign. And I saw it with the Scott Walker presidential campaign, all of which ended the same way. This weird kind of arrogance inside, this entitlement and arrogance that just oozes out and you can't help but feel it. And I don't know if, if, if that makes sense to you or if I'm saying something that resonates but I saw the same thing there, too, that I saw with those three campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, likability is something that, you know, to your first point, has been discussed very, very consistently. I think the third point makes a lot of sense. And look, there's there's something that I think all those points rests on. There was a calculation, I like to say, and I think you've heard me say this. I like to say there's every campaign has a theme or a thesis. Yep, yep. And the theme and thesis of this campaign was the Republican Party was ready for 
someone who was like Donald Trump, but was not him personally. Yeah. And that thesis was just wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers have only gotten better. His general election numbers, so with independents and even some Democrats, have only gotten better, let alone with Republicans. And so I'm not even sure that had all those points that we have been making, had they gone perfectly well, had he even stood a chance. And some of them are a byproduct of the fact that that theme and thesis was wrong, because part of the reason why I think he was likable in Florida and did what he did in Florida, of course, the fight and all that was, was a thing. But it's because he wasn't going against someone who was who was still exceptionally well liked by a whole pocket of people. I mean, you saw the animosity when he announced and the intensity from people that have been otherwise saying amazing things and great things about DeSantis when it was Governor DeSantis, but now when he was candidate DeSantis against Donald Trump, had did a 180. And so I really think I don't think we can we can shortchange that foundational thesis for the campaign that it was just not the right time. It wasn't. You're right about that. And and I should have added that to to my list. You're right to add it. Um, The it's wrong to say anyone's entitled to an office. But when you have a popular ex-president or popular ex-anything who who uh, who who has a legitimate argument to make for running again, like Donald Trump, um, there is something that you have to start with, which is a feeling of entitlement by the base that supports him and loves him. I mean, you 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 are absolutely right about if I'm picking up what you're putting down. I mean, there was this un tarnishable love for the front runner and the ex-president all the time and it was it was overestimated to think that you could peel that away from people yeah yeah the second or he, overestimated uh, i should say not underestimated overestimated exactly yeah the second he turned it on and then the remainder of the individuals that were just they were all calling at one another and then Ramos, you see what i'm saying like then you get the actual dynamics of a presidential campaign where you know there's ebbs and flows and you know people have to consolidate then you add on the fact of the campaign and the campaign management and then you get into all these other points and it just no wonder it, it amplified the way that um you know the way that it did and i think in general you know, even now in New Hampshire, I mean, to go back to you know Nikki Haley, and that's why I feel like the inevitability of this race. I think the Trump team has just done an amazing job of this. You know, not Governor Sununu, who's all on board for Nikki Haley and has never been a friend of Donald Trump. Now he's even lowering expectations in New Hampshire. Yeah, for I Nikki saw Haley's that. Form. Yeah, yeah, he's changing his tune a little bit. Let me pick up on New Hampshire and also South Carolina with you when we come right back. Can you stay a little bit? Can you stay, stay a few it. segments. George Kaloff is our guest from the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, which is brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals, your trusted source for keen and great political advice and analysis is George Kaloff of the Resolute Group and Data Orbital, our guest this hour. All right, New Hampshire and South Carolina. Let me Before we move to Nikki Haley, one more thought on Ron DeSantis to run by you, George, if I might. He is all but foregoing giving up on New Hampshire and, as if, if you take him seriously, putting all his eggs in South Carolina. What the hell? Really, honestly? does he, I mean, he's already double behind Haley in South Carolina. It is her state. Does he really think he can do this? Is this just not an ongoing slow march to further embarrassment? I don't understand the rationale there. The only thing I can think of is because the gap between Iowa and New Hampshire was so quick and he had put all of his eggs in Iowa basket, he had had zero focus on New Hampshire. So even though he's actually you know, materially more behind 
in South Carolina than Nikki Haley is. You know, his folks are looking at the data. The Nikki Haley support, even if she's the hometown governor, her support was coming from an audience that is way bigger of a percentage of the vote in New Hampshire, which is the more moderate Republican. Yeah. Uh, 70% of her supporters, by the way, that caucused for her um, actually identified more as pro-choice and pro-life. So that's a, something to, for us to, to probably discuss. And no so kidding. His, okay. Yeah. His, okay. You know, his calculus then in South Carolina is to say, fine, she's the hometown, but these are way more conservative voters. It also is a fairly evangelical and very religious state, different than New Hampshire. And look, at the end of the day, I think it's both of their final lines. I think that if they don't come anywhere close to or if not, frankly, beat Donald Trump in South Carolina, I think both those campaigns are wrapped up and, and the nomination's done in, in February. So I think that's another reason. But he doesn't want to be done in New Hampshire. And so he is lowering expectations to zero. And you've seen some candidates do that before where they give up on a state. Yes, you know, if it doesn't I there. have. But I have in my mind the Giuliani campaign, I think of 08, where he was saying, oh, I don't care about that state. I don't care about that state. You know, we're looking, I forget what one he was putting it all on, maybe Florida. But by that time, he had been like a three or four time loser. And I just yeah, don't, yeah. I, that's going to happen to DeSantis, isn't it? He's going to have have lost Iowa. He's going to have come in third in New Hampshire. And then, so he's now a two time loser going into a backup state that's not, it just seems like an odd strategy to me. It seems like yeah, I, the patient is bleeding and you can either put a band aid on it or you can create more cuts yeah i i think that it's i think there's a general consensus on the inevitability and this is the the least this is the least bad option okay. that they have i don't think there's a good option left frankly for any of those campaigns and, and i don't also see by the way too just a quick relation to 2016 if we remember when john Kasich went all the way to ohio which was well into the nominating season even though he was well behind on the delegate count because that was his home state i don't think we get any of that here i think i really do believe firmly that South Carolina is going to be the line of demarcation. Either okay. someone beats Donald Trump and gets gets ahead of him or comes within a couple percent uh, or not. And I think South Carolina at the end of it, I don't think anyone sort of holds on after, uh, I don't think anyone holds on afterwards. If I read the average of polling right now for South Carolina, Trump's at 52, Haley's at 22, DeSantis is at 11. So Trump's up about 30. Can you yeah. make up 30 yeah. points? I don't think so. Yeah. No, I don't think so, especially, again, with the demographic of South Carolina. It's, yeah. an ex- it's an exceptionally conservative state. And if there was a chance, for example, that Ron DeSantis steps out of the race, I think the vast majority of his supporters go to Donald Trump. As, by the way, the Ramaswamy supporters moving forward are going to go, you know, depending on what percentage, um, you know, that he had. They all are coming from the same pocket of uh, of support. Again, we and I've reminded listeners of this for, for a bit in general. Donald Trump's favorability since the moment he took office and a little before, frankly, he was elected the first time in 2016. Uh, he's been at about 75 to 80 percent, depending on the state and the subdivision favorability amongst Republican voters. And it has been consistent almost the entire time. Again, little dips here and there, but it has been fairly consistent. And so the preponderance of candidates are fighting for that 80 percent that's still like him or that 75 percent. Um, and and a couple, Christy, Haley, I think, are fighting for the other 25 to 30 percent. And there's just I mean, I think it's, it's well, very clear there's just not enough of those voters. What do you say to liberal or Democratic or Chris Christie types who say, well, what we're seeing here is a, a hardened third of the party, if not more, that just don't want Donald Trump? What do you say to that? I, I uh 
I guess the, the, the best thing that comes to mind is growing up, my mom would tell me when she's trying to console me, you know, if, if I got sad that someone didn't like me, she said, you know, George, even when Jesus Christ came, there was a pocket of people that didn't like him. <laughs> so what I say to that is there's no chance that any man or woman is going to have 100% support from the party. I think we can very clearly remember when W. Bush, when he was president, had pockets of people that were hardened against him. And again, maybe hardened is the wrong word, but soft, they were soft against him. him. I think that's what yeah. it's about. I think they're soft against Trump. I think at the end of the day, well, that does raise a question. I don't think I'm outing you by calling you a Republican. Um, do you worry about an independent like Robert Kennedy peeling off votes? Maybe, but at the end of the day, if you're a Republican and you actually study what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. believes, and other than his stance on COVID, he does not hold a single thing that is remotely similar to a conservative viewpoint. I think that's going to be loud and clear. Up until this point, look, the, the Trump team's also very smart about this. They only, they only go after the thing immediately in front of them. They don't want to give life to something that doesn't have life. And so if he becomes a legitimate candidate and if he gets onto ballots in, in a number of states, and I think, it's, I think you, you do a very quick expose about all the stances that he holds that are essentially progressive stances. And I don't know how those Republicans, I mean, I suppose if you're a never Trump Republican, maybe you go there, but those people weren't going to be for Donald Trump anyways. Those people voted for Joe Biden last time, and they made it very clear. We know a number of names like that in Arizona who did, and they did it across the country. So I'm just not convinced that the support that he has now in the polling is going to hold. I just don't think many people know. I think there's there's an allure about him that many people don't actually understand what's below the surface there. Do you think this is a Trump-Biden race? I guess I'm asking you, do you think Biden is the nominee? I do think so. I mean, I mean, look, there's, you know, there's always continued stories about health and can he do it and all that. But I, I think it's very clear the Democratic apparatus, unless something really, really crazy occurs, they're standing by him. There's no sense that anyone is backing away. Anyone of note other than like Congressman Dean Phillips, who is essentially on an island on his own now, you know, now that he's challenging him officially as a Democrat. Um, so I think he's the nominee. Yeah, that's been my view, too. And I've said I've had other people say as resolutely that he's not. They're convinced he's not going to be the nominee. But I've been saying what you've been saying. It's not the kind of thing you can keep secret for too long if there's some ulterior or alternate plan that they're waiting for, like some kind of convention maneuverings. Those kinds of things tend to leak out. If there is some other plan, and I think it would have leaked out uh, by now if that were yeah, It's 2024. It's 2024. So what can we keep a secret nowadays? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not like in 1910 yeah. when, when, when we didn't yeah. have social media and yeah. we all lived miles apart via yeah. train and we were connected maybe. But, I mean, in today's day and age, no way. We're all inter- instantaneously interconnected yeah. via the Internet. So With a lot no of anonymous sources who want to talk to a reporter, right? Yeah, yeah who and want we, to feel important. Right, we, that. we just I mean, haven't seen leaks. that story. Yeah, let me take a break yeah. and come back with uh, more from you on uh, going forward here. George Kaloff is my guest. Let's talk, uh, let's speculate on uh, vice presidential nominations. Uh, George Kaloff and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Studios, brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. George Kaloff is my guest. He of the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. I heard um, someone who's relatively close to Donald Trump on a radio show say he already knows who the VP nominee will be. Uh, It came out in that interview that this person said it's not a female. Now, these things could change and this person could be wrong. Um, And and minds do change, of course, as well. 
But do you have a sense? I'll throw four names at you, George, that I was suspecting were in the offing and see if you agree or the merits of them or if you have different names. I was thinking potential nominees might be Tim Scott, might be Christy Noam, might be Ben Carson. And I had a fourth name that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. I can't come up with it right now. But in any event, I don't know if any of those names are in your basket of projections or if you have a different set. Yeah, I mean, historically, right, the VP complements what the president, you know, isn't. So often if it's a more moderate president, you pick a more conservative. So, you know, John McCain was perceived as more moderate. He picked Sarah Palin. Man picks a woman. Joe Biden is obviously white while he enjoys strong support from, you know, the Democratic base that is African-American, but he picked Kamala Harris. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so you, you have that. You see, you know, Barack Obama, who was new on the scene, picks Joe Biden, who's an institution in Democratic politics. So you often see that complement. Um, you know, some of those names that you mentioned, you know, I would say, you know, do complement. But the other part that I think you pick, which is someone that adds something to your equation, right? right? They add a state or they add a region. Uh-huh. And so, you know, someone like, obviously, uh, Senator Scott, adds a tremendous amount of prowess and intelligence and, and he is established and brings in some of that, you know, that evangelical Christian vote that I know that Donald Trump complimented with, with VP Pence, you know, but comes from a state that isn't in question, but, uh, you know, but, but Tim Scott obviously has a certain message and they didn't really knife each other during the campaign. So yeah, I would say that right. there's, you know, that I think there's a, there's a possibility there. I think Christy Gnomes would be interesting. I, I would say that because the state, similar to how Alaska was to McCain, yeah. I, and, and frankly, some of the dynamics of her personal life yeah. uh, recently, I don't know that they want to highlight that. Okay. A name that I found, uh, and then Ben Carson, I think, would you know also kind of compliments in a, in a huge way, and obviously as someone who you know has been in that orbit, I just don't know if, if he has sort of the kind of the, the name or the or the desire. Um, you know, a name that I thought was interesting. That also was a man that was in Axios's shortlist, which again I think you know they put they put Nikki Haley on that list, which I think is absolutely I don't think there's a chance. Of that. I don't either. Anyways, I just don't think so no. either. I know people keep trying to say that, but I just I, I think I that's I, I, there's just so much there's too much water under that bridge. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how that I don't know how you do that. But the name that was very interesting is JD Vance, and this is oh, why I like that, that is interesting, very interesting. Yeah, because yeah. he comes from a region and talks to a voter that Donald Trump needs to win. You're yep. talking the rural Pennsylvanian, the uh, obviously I don't think Ohio's in question, but in Michigan, Wisconsin, it's almost like you 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 approach the people that that, you know, like a, a Fetterman speaks to from the from the left. Yeah. And he advanced with his story and he's got access to money. That could yeah. be very interesting. And again, yeah. I don't know if that ends up coming to fruition. It, it would be definitely against the grain in the sense that they would be both white men. Um, and he comes from a state that he doesn't need, but I feel like he speaks to a voting population or has at least shown the ability to speak to a voting population that is needed in the Midwest. I think the, the you know, this race goes through Arizona, goes through Georgia, and it goes through the Midwest. That's an um, interesting so. name. And, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's he's an, obviously an intellectual, first of all, and uh, carries a lot of heft with him. Um, he can do the attack dog thing. He can also, you know, it's funny before he got into politics, everyone kind of loved him with his best selling book. And I mean, he was kind of a darling of 60 minutes. He has an amazing story. Yeah. Amazing yeah. Story. Yeah. Yeah. And then he becomes a Republican Senator and all the knives come out. All of a sudden he's well, the person yeah, everyone loved, that. you know, they hate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. We know how that goes. But yeah, I mean, he has got an amazing story. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like 
with the dynamics of this race, I don't want to just diminish. I think the, the VP role still has a tremendous amount of weight. I do feel like in this dynamic, because both likely nominees, as we've discussed, have sort of their reputation precedes them, good, bad, or otherwise, and so much of the thought around them is baked in, it is going to be hard to have the VP have a big effect. And so yeah. at that point, then you pick someone who you get along with and who is good and is a net positive and doesn't have skeletons in their closet, someone who's vetted. And he can walk um, into any interview with any reporter and just, yeah, this is, sure. he, yeah. He, 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 doesn't need a, he doesn't need a briefing book. George, uh, you got one more segment? You have time for one more? Sure. George sure. Kaloff is my guest. He and I will be right back. We'll talk about the election nationally and generally. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. George Kaloff is my guest. George, I um, when I asked young David, my producer, to put this song into my bumper music from Reba McIntyre, he got mad at me for being an old fuddy-duddy. No one cares about Reba McIntyre. I see she's playing the Super Bowl halftime show. So there you go, young David. Listen to your elders, <laughs> right, George? Hey, look, what's, uh, what's old is young again. Exactly. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what I know. Exactly. Um all right. Well, we've talked uh, a lot about Trump and Republican and Biden, the Republican uh, uh, primaries and Biden. Anything more you want to say, but also anything nationally or even statewide we should be watching for that you find interesting that we haven't covered yet? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in the state, uh, we're we're in the midst of a um, legislative session in divided government, which hasn't happened in Arizona. Obviously, last year we had it, but it hadn't happened before that in about 15 years. We are facing some questions on our budget in the sense of, you know, last year we had a lot of money to spend. We probably spent too much. Not probably. We did spend too much. This year we don't have enough money to spend, so we're now fighting over cuts. Um, and there's a lot of animosity coming from the ninth floor against uh, something and, and things in a program that, that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about, which is our um, our school choice laws, not just the empowerment scholarship account, which is new, but even something that we've had for years and years, which is our tax credit, which I would say tens of thousands, easily north of 100,000 individuals, uh, families, children use to educate their kids. And so we're in for, you know, I guess what, you know, the message I want to get across is that we're in for a wild ride, but I would, I would implore listeners to, to be keyed in, to be keyed into organizations who are talking about this because, um, that would have a material if somehow she was able to to get her way and roll back some of those programs that would have a material impact on a tremendous amount of individuals if not in your direct family but someone very like you know to use the Kevin Bacon role one or two degrees removed from you just with how uh, with how widespread the usage of these uh, to me no-brainer programs are in allowing parents to educate their kids in the best way possible so I just wanted to flag that that's a big deal and that fight's going to continue to escalate in the coming weeks I, I sometimes wonder just how powerful or strong the Democratic Party here is in Arizona. They they elected a governor, but I, I in my time, I just can't remember a weaker governor. Uh, say what you want, like or love or hate or dislike a little Doug Ducey. He did press conferences. He was available. He uh, did interviews. Um, she just cowers from the she's nowhere to be found it seems like to me and i don't know who else they got right now i guess chris mays i guess but i gather that chris but from what i read chris mays the attorney general and the governor don't always see eye to eye no no they they don't and and look there's you know i i would say the governor's new chief of staff who's a former legislator and a uh, and a minority leader um is definitely 
you know, he's, he's trying to up the game. But I think one of the most telling things, there's a center-left publication um, that I try to, you know, I, I read to try to understand what their viewpoint is, that essentially when the governor put out this budget thing, they're like, yeah, well, I don't know what she's doing. Everyone knows that the Republicans, you know, are never going to support this. This is not a realistic plan, right. essentially calling for a plan B. And that's someone who absolutely should have her back. And yeah. so I would agree with you, that strength there, the political capital that is going to be needed to spend to get something that gets across the line is just not there. Um, but on the other hand, there just seems to be a little bit of a power vacuum left after eight years of, of Governor Ducey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very consistently and very materially playing itself out. It did last year. I think it's going to really play out this year in the lead up to the election. And it, this, by the way, makes the legislative election this year where Republicans have one seat majorities in the state Senate and the state House even that much more important for those that care about programs like this. Um, because if, if one chamber or both chambers somehow were, were to switch hands and, and be led by Democrats, and, and then obviously, you know, Governor Hobbs would, would get her way and would be able to do whatever. How are around, those races generally looking uh, to you from where you sit right now? I'm a little nervous about how the abortion uh, vote will, will play out and bring out bases from perhaps the side I don't want the bases to be brought out from. Yeah, it's it almost feels a little too early. I mean, I, I don't I don't love it, but I'm also generally and inherently uh, I don't want to say pessimistic. I guess that's why you call me Eeyore. But I'm someone who who, you know, I'm a realist, as I like to call myself. But there's also a lot of very positive things to to be able to have our, uh, you know, has to be hung on. But look, it's January of, of the year. There's a tremendous amount of time yet to go. And frankly, a lot of what's going to happen here is going to play out because of a lot of the national dynamics. And a lot of it is going to be dependent on how much money. Uh, do the Republicans have to spend to counteract the money that we know the Democrats are going to have to spend? So there's a lot, frankly, that's up in the air, Seth. And again, that's why I would say people really need to be dialed in this year. Every year is an important election. I'm not going to tell you this is the this is the one because every year is important. You should always engage and dial in. But we're really at a, an inflection point. We have been for a while and it, the pressures continue to increase. And, and so, you know. We, we, it's an all-hands-on-deck election, I guess, if I can describe it that yeah. way. Okay, good. And do you think that's going to play out, issue of abortion will play out nationally much, or do you think it's now more state-by-state? State? No, I think it is going to be more state-by-state. State. Um, you know, I know Florida's, you know, facing a potential constitutional amendment. Arizona, uh, we know that we're facing it here. Uh, they just tried to, they're going to try one in Missouri. So they're going after red states and pink states and purple states and all kinds of states, right? It's, this is not just a swing state strategy. They're going to anywhere and everywhere that has ballot referrals or an ability, essentially an ability to spend money to change the Constitution via initiative or referendum. They're, they're going to that state and they're trying it. Okay. All right, George, stay close. Thanks for everything. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll go on to New Hampshire and check in with you after that next week. All right. We'll talk soon, Seth. All right, brother. Thank you very, very much. George Kaloff from the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. Um, Let me uh, put in a word for our sponsor at the Midas Gold Group. They um, tell me that the U.S. government and the Fed will have no choice but to eventually steer interest rates lower because if they don't, the current level of interest rates will bankrupt the nation and there's no telling when the dam will break. But when it does, Midas wants to make sure you have flood insurance, in this case, gold. Call Midas Gold Group now. Look into the opportunities gold can provide you as a way to diversify your investments. Give them a call at 480-360-3000 or go to MidasGoldGroup.com. Midas Gold Group is the nation's number one veteran-owned gold IRA firm. 
protect your assets. Call 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Midas Gold Group, always faithful. MidasGoldGroup.com. Be right back. Portions of this show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. They have a secure investment a secure in a secure and collateralized portfolio. actually helps people, and you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. 10.25% fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. You are in control here. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees and there is no attack on principal if you ever need your money back. You get your monthly statement, of course, with no surprises. Check them out at investyrefi.com. Let's invest the letter Y, then refy.com, or call 888-Y-REFI-24. 888-Y-REFI-24. Um, what, I didn't ask you what, what uh, pin you have on today. Do you have one on today? I caught you naked. I guess. All right. I'm wearing a sweater, and it's it's difficult to put pins in sweaters. Is it? Well, I don't want the holes to stay it's... there forever. Sweaters are loose. They're built in. They're made for pins. They're it's a soft landing. Yeah, but I, I don't wash these. So All if right. I if I if I spear the fabric, actually more precisely, if I separate the threads of the fabric by putting a pin in there. Uh, the holes will stay. All right, if fine. I don't if I don't wash it regularly. All right, fine. Um, how's your Raymond Chandler stuff going? I'm still reading it. You, you doubter, you doubter. Have you, you read the Long Goodbye? Thing. Have you read the Long Goodbye? As the name would suggest, that's the last one that I will be reading. All right. Well, so when, maybe in October I'll get there. When you do, uh, pay attention to how they describe the Gimlet drink. I've heard about that. Okay. I've heard about that. All right. Yeah. All right. Long Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Very good movie. Elliot Gould. Do you like it? I don't like Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould. I don't think no. he's that good of an actor. I'm well, sorry. It's, it's, it, he plays Elliot Gould in this movie. He yeah. mumbles. Yeah. He puts his hands in his pockets. Yeah. He's moody. Yeah. But he drives a cool 1948 Lincoln Continental around Los Angeles. Yeah, that is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let me see. What would, well, Yes. Okay. Great. I know that uh, I gave you kind of in my monologue – a little bit of a of a different take on the First Amendment, uh, but when you think about it, um, and you think about what free speech is, and this has to do with events going on at ASU and what the public should be supporting, and what the purpose of the First Amendment is, uh, think seriously about it and think deeply about it, uh, because at the end of the day, think about what it was the founders designed the First Amendment to protect. When we're talking about freedom of speech, the founders were not moral relativists. Keep that in mind and keep in mind what Robert Jackson said. And I'll end the show with this. The Constitution was never designed to become a suicide pact. Thanks for spending some of your week with us, folks. Until Monday, on behalf of David, Mr. Bill, Terry, the rest of you. God bless you all. I'm Seth Leibson. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.